Sound speeds. We are recording. Toast, you ready? <coughs> Bezel! If it isn't our first episode's Joelical Choice. Have you seen Toast, or did you finally murder him? The natural result of the escalating fight the two of you have been engaging in since living together the last four months. Your silence is not reassuring. Hey, Toast. Yeah, you hid pretty far under the bed from this boy, didn't you? Bezel, I love you too, but this is not about you. Toast, ready for another episode? Welcome to Ineffable, a Cats movie podcast. This show is meant as a cozy exploration of the deranged motion picture that is 2019's Cats, like the quiet euphoria in imagining what you'll do once you're fully vaccinated just several weeks away, and reckoning with not having had meaningful in-person conversations with more than three people in a year. I'm your host, Joel Arnold, and with me is my co-host, Toast. Toast and I have had some changes, including making a move a few months ago that's brought him into the same living space with Basil. Toast, how do you feel about that? Yeah, for me too. It's been challenging, and then adorable, and then distressing, and now just oscillating between cute and, oh, I have to go break up a fight between the two of you and put you in separate rooms. C'est la vie. Je m'appelle. Okay, just between us, I do worry about Toast because he is clearly the less experienced and skilled predator. I mean, Basil, Basil was a tough-ass street cat. And Toast, he just has this endless enthusiasm. So even after Basil's pinned him and is chomping on his neck softly, Toast still goes back for more. If anyone has any advice, I would very much appreciate it. Uh, we're trying multi-cat feel away. I mean, also, do you have any cat martial arts trainers? I feel like Toast, his fighting style, it's not the most effective. He flops over and, like, fights from the ground while Basil is just, like, pouncing. Yeah, they're going to be fine. They are friends until they're not, and then we put them in separate rooms. In Cats, the movie news, I have been made aware of a one-person show celebrating the movie. The show entitled... How to Live a Jellical Life, Life Lessons from the 2019 hit movie musical Cats, reportedly blends stand-up, dance, and a slideshow presentation as writer-performer Linus Karp dresses up like a jellical and makes the case why the Cats movie is actually great. I am furious that this show is staged in the UK because I need to see it. I mean, it obviously speaks to my Cats forward lifestyle. And then it's also been well-reviewed and had a sold-out run in the fall. It is returning in June to the Lion and Unicorn Theatre in London. So if you are there and can see it, please do, for my sake, for Toast's sake. Tom Hooper, the T-Man. Oh, Tommy Hoops. Before we get to this episode's discussion, a lot of which is about T-Bird, I'll offer a refresher of the man who directed Cats 2019. 
Thomas George Hooper was born in 1972 in London, England, and kicked off his budding interest in directing uh, when at age 13, he made his first film, a 16mm short called Runaway Dog. It's unconfirmed whether that dog is the same dog only heard and never seen in Cats. But to me, this detail says that Tom Hooper was destined to make a movie about the lives of popular four-legged pets and simply got horribly wrong which kind fate had meant for him. Tom was educated at Oxford University and after graduating started his career directing TV commercials, episodes of British children's television, soaps, and costume dramas. His feature debut in 2004 was Red Dust, a drama starring Hilary Swank and Chuyatel Ejiofor about the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He'd go on a several-year run directing historical drama miniseries, Elizabeth I with Helen Mirren for HBO, Longford with Jim Broadbent for BBC Channel 4, and his big breakout, 2008's much Emmy-nominated John Adams, starring Paul Giamatti and Laura Linney. At this point, Hooper moved on from television to directing his second feature, The Damned United, a biographical sports drama written by Peter Morgan, who wrote The Queen and is the showrunner for The Crown. It stars Michael Sheen as iconoclastic English football manager Brian Clough in a fictionalized telling of the events surrounding Clough's 44-day tenure as manager of the football club Leeds United. If you haven't seen this movie, it's a decent watch uh, if you're into the kind of sports movie that's less about the sport and more about the egos of the men involved. I especially liked seeing Timothy Spall as Clough's far less brash but more dedicated assistant Peter Taylor. And for you Star Trek Deep Space Nine fans, uh, Cole Meany, aka Chief O'Brien, plays Clough's grumpy rival manager. You can also see in this movie pretty well some of the markers of Hooper's go-to style. Frequent close-ups of actors, use of negative space with subjects off to one side in the frame, and saturated colors with a blue tint. By this time, Hooper had also developed quite the reputation for his skill working with actors, something that served him well in the years to come. In Hooper's run of films that followed, The King's Speech, Les Miserables, and The Danish Girl, each movie boasts at least an Oscar-nominated and an Oscar-winning performance. And Hooper himself won the Academy Award in 2011 for Best Director for The King's Speech, the historical drama about King George VI, played by Colin Firth, inheriting the throne after his brother's abdication and working with a speech therapist, Lionel Logue, played by Jeffrey Rush, to manage his stutter. It was a major box office and critical success, and won Best Picture. At this point, the Hoopster could do no wrong, and he went even harder, taking on one of the most popular musicals out there, Les Miserables, and deciding that his actors would not sing their parts in the studio, but sing live on camera, which is not wholly original, but is not often practiced because it's challenging for performers and also technologically, and yields, at least in this case, a specific kind of out-of-breath, sometimes talk-sing performance, or if you are poor Russell Crowe, the saints bless him, a kind of barely singing-talking. But this does get Anne Hathaway an Oscar, so that's fine by me. We're pretty much skipping right on past the Danish girl due to what's been described by transgender writers as a regressive and harmful portrayal of transgender woman painter Lily Elba by cisgender man Eddie Redmayne. So, now we're pretty much up to the present. Tom George Hooper 
He's directed a Best Picture, one Best Director, adapted one of our most popular modern musicals, keeps on directing actors to nominations and awards, and despite some people's reservations about his wonky style, he is undeniably a prestige director who makes popular, or at least to the Academy, inoffensive dramas. So what is it this time that Tommy Boy takes on a new project? Directing, and for the first time, co-writing the adaptation of another very popular musical. They'll do the live singing again, cast dancers and Broadway actors and prestige actors who already have their awards. They'll collaborate with the show's prolific composer and a pop star to write a new song and use motion capture technology to bring alive the performances. It'll release at Christmas, a time for families to go to the movies, as well as right in the middle of awards season. And next Oscars, well, they'll just be a layup for old hoops. To discuss Cats in terms of its director, I talked with Kaylee Donaldson, a writer and film critic whose work has appeared on Pajiba, What to Watch, and Sci-Fi Fangirls. She co-hosted the excellent entertainment industry-focused podcast, The Hollywood Read, with past guest Sarah Mars. And while they're no longer making that show, Kaylee brought her significant breadth and depth of knowledge of the industry to the many Cats-related subjects that came up, including Cats director Tom Hooper. Kaylee, hello! Hi there! Thanks so much for joining and talking about cats. I welcome any opportunity to talk about it. I feel like I will never, ever talk enough about it. It is now, it has burrowed its way into my brain for actually years now that I think about it. If I was to go back and kind of look at my history, <laughs> I was never a cats fan, but it was always this object of pop culture fascination for me in the same way that the sort of very strange, abstract, how the hell did they make this pieces of pop culture kind of burrow in there. Interview with the Vampire was like that for a long time for me because my mum and dad had the video of it when I was very young and it sat on the shelf. I wasn't allowed to watch it because I was too young, but it just seemed like this magical thing. I like that movie a whole lot more than I like Cats, but it has that same sort of inescapable, like stuck its claws into my head and I've never been able to get it out. Yeah, I think that's exactly what... The people, well, it's it's so good to hear you be so enthusiastic, but also like, how how can anyone not be? Like you're saying, like a good movie that fascinates or mesmerizes, like burrows its way in. And, and for some people, certain ones hit harder. I know some people really love Jupiter Ascending for that reason. Something about it has infected people <laughs> like a parasite and it won't leave. Yeah, I think Jupiter Ascending is a really good sort of comparison to make. I'm really fascinated by movies that are simultaneously horrendous but kind of amazing. You know, like, there's absolutely no reason that Cats should exist. It was always going to be terrible. Like, there was no way to translate it unless you were going to do something hyper-experimental, which Tom Hooper was never going to do. And yet I'm really glad that it's there. Like, I'm glad that we have this movie now. And I hope that when the plague has disappeared, we can all gather in yes. rowdy screenings and do this. Because they haven't held any rowdy screenings near me, but I'm desperate to go to one of these things. Uh, but I'm sort of fascinated by those kinds of movies, those vanity project disasters that it's staggering that people gave them money, but you're so thankful they did. Because we don't get these kind of movies anymore. Like, we really don't get sort of ego trips like this anymore like winter's tale is a great example oh, like I love it so came much. <laughs> it's so wonderful i actually made my mum watch it with me i was still living at home when that film came out on satellite tv here and every two or three minutes my mum would just laugh or say i don't know what's happening and it was so <laughs> entertaining and like I, i'm surprised that hasn't become a midnight movie favorite because i mean the moment you hear russell crowe with that accent and the moment colin farrell starts talking to that horse you yes. know you should be gone 
So Cats ends up feeling like this perfect amalgamation of all these things that I myself am really fascinated by. I love musicals. I'm fascinated by adaptations. Um, I'm fascinated by pure vanity projects. But there's also the hyper-specific period of greed is good British 1980s high-concept culture that I think Cats is maybe the best representation of. Like, I think if you needed a list of, like, how to represent Thatcher Britain in pop culture, it's going to be, like, Wall Street, Duran Duran, and Cats. So how does it fit the musical more in that UK context? Like, I can feel it coming out of the 80s as something that's overblown, that's very in-your-face, that's loud, that's saturated, that's glitzy. But I don't know how so much it fits within uh, the context that Andrew Lloyd Webber would have been coming from at that time. Okay, so it's important to note that Andrew Lloyd Webber is a massive Tory. He was briefly in the House of Lords for a while. He has since retired that. But he is a big supporter of the Conservative Party to the point where he was pals with Maggie Thatcher and a bunch of Tory politicians. So he's really a child of that era. I mean, he's, he comes from like pretty posh background. He's, he's a British guy in the arts, of course he is. This is kind of a plague for us. Um, but if you look at the context of the British musical coming into like the late 70s, early 80s, Andrew Lloyd Webber is kind of... Him and Tim Rice, when they were partners are the ones that kind of blow the dust off it because Britain was so behind America on this front. America was bringing out Oklahoma and West Side Story and South Pacific, Rodgers and Hammerstein and Stondheim. They were totally reimagining the musical to become like a real artistic kind of institution. And we didn't really have that. Like Musicals tended to be quite chintzy and very old fashioned, very like Noel Coward kind of chamber drama sort of things. And then Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice do Jesus Christ Superstar, which was actually a bigger hit in America before it was in Britain. After that comes Evita, but after that comes Cats. And Cats was a huge passion project for Andrew Lloyd Webber. He remortgaged his house to get this funded because he couldn't raise the money for it. There's a great story, if you're ever bored, there is a BBC documentary series called The, um, I think it's called the Story of Musicals. It's on YouTube. It's like three hours long, three parts. And it's the story of the musical in Britain from about World War II to 2005, 2006. And there's a scene in it where Gillian Lynn, who was the choreographer of the show, said, we all met outside the theatre and Lloyd Webber says, okay, so you guys all need to go find your rich friends and get them to give us money. It was actually at that stage, they were like, no, please, seriously, we can't afford to put this show on. Like he really believed in this. But it's also a show that is very engineered to be oddly appealing to the masses, despite the fact that it is bonkers. I mean, it's based on a book of poetry written by a crazed fascist. It's exclusively a dance-based show. There's no plot, famously. It's incredibly earnest. Like, there's no winking and nodding with this show. It's completely taking itself seriously. And there's audience participation, because if you see the show live, a man dressed in leotards and leg warmers is going to be rubbing himself up against you. (laughs) But it also ended up being really perfect for the time. It's lavish, it's huge high concept, it's big budget. I mean, you see all the money on the stage. And the 80s mega musical is defined by the big sets and the high concept and the lavish drama. Think of stuff like Les Miserables, uh, Starlight Express, Phantom of the Opera, which is my personal favourite. And it kind of ends with Miss Saigon. It's also a great show in that you don't need to speak English to get it. And I think this is the reason Lloyd Webber was so successful for so long, is that if you are a tourist in like 1984 who's coming to Britain on, on cheap airfare and English is your second language, you're not going to see a Sondheim show because Sondheim requires you to understand everything that's going on. It's all about the lyrical dexterity and the layers and the themes. Whereas if you watch Cats, it's like, oh, the tunes are catchy. I don't need to understand what's being said because I know it's emotionally sweeping me along. And there's dancing. 
I mean, he's always kind of engineered his shows to be like that. And I think there's a reason it took him about, oh my God, I mean, his last big hit was Phantom. And then between that, he had no hit until School of Rock. He really struggled when he kind of stopped doing that sort of show. But, you know, I think for better or worse, Cats is the exemplification of his agenda and also this particular era in pop culture that greed is good, everything is bigger, you have to see the money, you have to spend the money, and I also don't want to have to think about it. In that way, the huge spectacle that translates across languages and cultures feels a little bit like the success of Hollywood exporting franchise movies, where plot isn't necessarily important, but it's the experience of the set piece, the action scene. And that way, I I wouldn't have expected to compare Cats to like a Marvel movie, but I wonder if they have some of the same kind of appeal. Oh yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's a coincidence that the rise of the mega musical coincides with the real beginning of the summer blockbuster. You know, it's a post-Jaws and Star Wars era, and everyone scrambles to copy Spielberg and Lucas and all of these like hot young filmmakers who were bucking the trends at the time and are now the status quo. You kind of saw that with musicals at the time as well. A lot of people worked very hard to copy Andrew Lloyd Webber. If you look at that whole era, like America couldn't keep up with Britain on those shows. Sondheim's shows have famously never run anywhere near as long as Lloyd Webber's, despite the fact that I think every musical lover on the planet can agree that Sondheim is better. Like famously, Into the Woods lost Best Musical at the Tony's to Phantom of the Opera. And that's kind of stuck in the craw of every musical theatre fan since the 80s. But you kind of can't deny that the formula works. I don't get the movie, but I get the stage show. I completely get how you get swept away in the sheer bombastic, shameless escapism for a show that is mega horny and totally inexplicable and kind of about a death cult and is full of like 80s synth and electric guitars. Like every time Andrew Lloyd Webber tries to use an electric guitar, it's hysterical to me. He is not a rock and roll man, but it totally works. And that's a lightning in the bottle moment in a way, because I don't think we necessarily replicate that now. Like, assuming that Broadway, let's pretend Broadway is still on right now, Broadway and the West End are still here. Yeah. The shows that are really bringing in the audiences, I mean, it's the age of the adaptation of a movie into a musical. So you have, like, Mean Girls is a big deal. But then you have things like Dear Evan Hansen and Hamilton and Hades Town, which are so wildly different from what Andrew Lloyd Webber was doing. They are much more kind of character driven, I would argue. Or in the terms of Hamilton, that show is kind of the exception that proves the rule. The fact that Hamilton is as huge as it is, is a minor miracle because it goes against every rule that you expect of what you need to be a hit. Oh, you need a familiar name, you need stars. Yeah, it has this mass appeal, but it's also experimental in a lot of ways. It's a musical rewriting of, you know, American political history that's very wordy. It didn't have any stars on the stage. It's not like a single driven show. Like there are great individual songs in that show. But like another big thing that Lloyd Webber did was he would always take single. Like, well, actually, his first shows were concept albums. Evita and Jesus Christ Superstar started life as albums. And then with things like Phantom, Aspects of Love, Cats, you had these big 11 o'clock numbers that you could then sell as singles. And that promoted the song. You don't really do that anymore. You don't promote the musical with the song these shows kind of find their audience in that way, which is a great benefit of the internet, I guess. You know, I've never seen Beetlejuice or Hades Town or all these things, but I have listened to the cast recordings. I have access to that in a way I probably wouldn't have if I was, you know, a kid watching TV and there's an advert for cats. And, you know, 
marketing was a big thing for Lord Webber as well. Cats essentially invented musical marketing. That was the first time you really got shows that started selling merchandise. And the merchandise kind of sells the show. So you've seen the t-shirts with the eyes with the dancers in them and that logo. Oh god, yeah, they're so iconic. It's so iconic. And now most musicals kind of have that. Like Hamilton has, you know, Alexander Hamilton on the star. Phantom has the mask. Les Mis has the girl that's actually in the book. That caught on in a big way. It's a way to keep spreading your message. Everything with Wicked is a good example. Disney have really harnessed that. Um, So I think for better or worse, Cats is musical theatre history, which it's hard to discuss sometimes because it's so strange. Like, I think people who don't like musicals, when they explain why they don't like musicals, the show they typically point to is Cats. And I think the movie kind of just reinforced that a little bit for some people. Yeah, and, and that's strange and interesting the way something like this that's so successful and in ways that I didn't realize, like you're saying with merchandise and with the style of the time, influential on how to market and style, but not necessarily content like The Matrix or Star Wars. What followed those would be imitators, but also ways of shooting that when you saw the original, you're like, oh, I, I, I sort of already knew about that. Or like, that seems maybe a little bit dated because everything has imitated it since then. But Cats has had this influence, yet the lesson that no one took was to create something without plot and to have it purely be only songs. Like, there's still plot to most musicals. There are actually a lot of musicals that don't necessarily have plots. A chorus line doesn't have a plot. Stephen Sondheim's company doesn't have a plot. The difference is those shows are much more based around character. And Cats is nothing but an array of characters. But there's like no depth to them. No, they're all just introducing themselves. And, you know, because it's based on a book of poems written for kids, you know, it has the um, as Starlight Express was described in her view as having the emotional depth of a teaspoon. And I think that Cats is kind of like that, too. I mean, it's by design. It is a show that allows you to just be swept up in it without having to really think about it. It is kind of a leave your brain at the door show in that aspect. And there's plenty of merit and you know worth in that kind of entertainment. It is very Michael Bay-esque, I guess. Everyone asks, you know, why the hell is Michael Bay popular? And it's like, well, you're still all gone to see his movies and you know, people around the world are still seeing them. And with the benefit of a musical, you know, Cats ran for 19, 20 years on Broadway. Uh, it ran for longer on the West End. It becomes a self-sustaining product by that point in time. If you're a tourist in town, if you're going to go see a show in 2000, you're probably not going to get tickets to the producers, which is the most popular show in town, and the tickets are like $100 minimum. But if you're going on a Tuesday night, you could probably walk in and see Cats and get a decent seat and not have to pay too much money. The Cats on stage may be at that stage where they don't entirely give a fuck anymore. (laughs) But it's Cats. It's so famous. You know, everyone knows it, even if they've never seen it. It's so seeped into the pop culture consciousness in that way. And, you know, when I was a kid, I knew of Cats, but I don't remember where. But I do remember every single joke I've heard about it, including episodes of The Simpsons, (laughs) including British comedy specials and things like that. Like, I know all of that. It was just part of life. I mean, it was just there. And in that aspect, Lloyd Webber is an evil genius. With it being so ubiquitous, like, even if I was too young to remember my actual experience of seeing it on video... But I still remember like the tire, the look of Grizabella. So with it being kind of permeated and people knowing cats, do you think there is a way the movie, a movie of cats could have been successful? I think the big problem that this movie came up with is this show is so popular to this day. Like you can still go see it in many cities. They've done tours and all these things. Universal didn't want to go niche with this. They wanted this thing to be a big blockbuster and they wanted it to be an Oscar player. 
Like yes. they really did seem to believe this could be to them what Les Mis had ended up being or Chicago, I think is I think everyone is still trying to be Chicago because I mean that show is, is really good. That movie is great because it seems so fresh and vibrant doing the thing that it did. Rob Marshall has tried to copy it so many times it doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. But you know, what that show did was reinvent itself enough to work. Kind of like not as radically as what Cabaret did with the Bob Fosse movie, but it was willing to take risks with the material. Because I get the feeling that Universal were like Hey, the guy that did Les Mis got us some Oscars for that movie, and he's got an Oscar, he'll get us this one. And they never really put any thought into what they needed out of this movie other than we need the 11 o'clock number of someone seeing memory so we can all cry. I think the only way this movie like, really works in terms of pure artistic merit as a movie is you need to strip the hell out of this thing. Like, I mean, th- there have been a number of animated films people wanted to make of it. Amblin wanted to do one under Steven Spielberg. They wanted it to be kind of 1940s bombed out London and the cats gather and that. That's a really cool idea. I think you either go fully animated or you break the fuck out of this thing. Like, you just play up the fact that it's fake. You know, just have people in the makeup and the leg warmers and the tights. Show them putting on their makeup. Do it kind of like the beginning of Moulin Rouge, you know, where the curtain opens and you see the Fox logo. Or do it like Joe Wright's Anna Karenina, where it's mm-hmm. all taking place in the theatre. Like, just play up the fact that this thing is performance and that it is fake. And invite people to use their imagination. Because that's the thing that I think makes the show so interesting on stage. Is because it's so weirdly bare bones... There's a kind of slapdash quality to it that I think is really interesting. It invites you to play around with it in your head. And I think if you catch that when you're young enough, it spurs the imagination in a way that helps the show. The film leaves nothing to the imagination. It fills in every gap. It tries to offer a plot. And it aims for like a weird kind of realism. Like I wouldn't say that it's a realistic film, but Tom Hooper is a filmmaker who really does seem to believe that everything he's making is Battleship Potemkin. (laughs) <laughs> and you can't do that in a show where cats do ballet and have a deaf cult. Like, you need to just play up the fact this isn't real and it's ridiculous, but I can still invite you into this world of strangeness and surrealism. I don't know what Tom Hooper's history is with musicals. I get the feeling he doesn't like them very much. Like, his approach to the material of cats is weird because the things that are great about cats are either ignored or just like swept under the rug or dismissed entirely. Like, the dance in Cats is great. You know, it's a weird mixture of like ballet and jazz and performance and mannerism. It's a totally different choreography in the movie, but he has no idea how to shoot it. And I wonder if that's because he doesn't give a crap about dance or because he realizes the CGI is so bad that these like limbs are just floating all over the place. You know, every time someone goes on point in that movie, it looks scary as hell because they've had to CGI over a ballet shoe to look like bare feet were covered in fur. And that's all you end up looking at. And I think that's a weird thing about the film is it's it's shot in the way that Tom Hooper shoots everything, which is there's a lot of shaky cam because realism. There's a lot of blank space. Like he loves to shoot negative space. Oh yeah, loves like a lopsided frame. He loves Colin Firth in the corner of a room and a 90% wall. Mm-hmm. You know, he loves a bit of a Dutch angle, like he's shooting a Warner Brothers cartoon. He loves all of these close-ups. I understand how if you're an actor, that must be kind of a dream. Like I totally get why Anne Halfway was like, yes, this is my moment in Les Mis. But that formula totally hinders that performance. She's sitting down and singing live. So she can't hit the proper notes because she can't breathe properly. But she has to do it live. And then they had to reinvent an entirely new form of sound recording and mixing to have people sing that live. But the downside of that is the rest of the sound mixing in the film sounds like crap. Like, 
the way that people walk around and you hear all these noises in the background and it doesn't work and it ends up feeling more theatrical and less real than if they just dubbed them in later. You know, how does Mamma Mia end up having better sound mixing than Les Miserables? Not to knock Mamma Mia, which is one of the great films of our time. Of course, I would accept no <laughs> criticism of Mamma Mia. The Mamma Mia cinematic universe means a lot to me. Tom yeah. Hooper could never. But I think that's the big problem and it's it's so strange and I think that's what makes it such a fascinating film because every decision is baffling. Like, literally every single decision made, you could spend an hour dissecting how it happened and why. I hope to. I appreciate you kind of mentioned I read this in one of your pieces on Cats. Like, you got the feeling of Les Mis that Hooper would rather not be making a musical. And he's taking, I feel like, that same attitude to Cats, but employing different tactics. Because it felt to me like he was doing less of the desaturated look that the more the blue tint that you saw i think in les mis and damned united and in king's speech like it's it's fully more colorful and saturated and i think there's less of that off-center framing but i don't feel the same enthusiasm that you would hope for when staging the musical because he's still trying to employ these tactics that don't serve it it's like he sees something when i think of les mis and the mass appeal of that translating it to a movie you would make the opposite of many of the choices he makes and i feel like the same is true with cats like he took away something from it that most of us did not and that that's kind of fascinating itself trying to see what it is he saw yeah i wonder how much choice he had in doing this project i get the feeling that it was kind of a case of you know you did lame as you'll do because we also, and I think this is a major problem with like Hollywood cinema as it comes to the musical. We tend to let like four people make musicals. Rob Marshall makes about 80% of all musicals in Hollywood right now, despite the fact that his bag of tricks has run really dry. His adaptation of Into the Woods is terrible. I love Chicago, will forever love it. I think he did a great job on that. And we also got caught into this weird space where we all seemed to decide, well, it doesn't really matter if they can't sing very well. It's about the acting. And it's like, we have a whole industry called Broadway and the West End yeah. where you can hire people that can do all of it. But what you see with Cats is they're trying to revive that property in a way because it was on Broadway quite recently, if I remember correctly. I think it was only there a couple of years ago and it was still pretty successful. People went to see it, you know, because they did it in the West End too. And it was Nicole Scherzinger from Pussycat Dolls played Grizabella. Oh, man. Which I think is how you end up getting Jennifer Hudson doing that role because, like, it makes no sense <laughs> that she's Grizabella. It's like, oh, my God, look at this horrible, rundown, old cat, so yeah, decrepit and miserable. And it's things. like, I mean, by the standards of how everyone looks in this movie, she looks quite good. Yeah. And she gets screwed over in this movie because, like, she has the big number. She has, like, one of the few things that works in the movie because she's a great singer. So, of course, her singing memory works. But he just does that thing that he does with Anne Hathaway where it's like, I have to just do a close-up of her singing it. I don't have to give a sense of anything else other than her snot, which is really clear on screen even when her face is half floating across her head. But it's that thing. is like, I don't think he knows how to shoot this stuff other than, well, the Academy likes realism. Realism is real and prestigious and you know of artistic merit therefore i'll shoot this like that so what you get is a movie that doesn't care about its singing it doesn't care about its dancing it doesn't care about like the weird whimsy of the show and the songs don't sound good like i wonder what recording they use for the music because it sounds so tinny like if you told me they just got like a cd from like the original cast recording in the 80s or something i totally <laughs> believe you it sounds so like inert oh i think i just have a terrible ear and i may not recognize tinniness because i was like oh this <laughs> this is all it's all good <laughs> <laughs> and 
it's weird. I mean, this is another thing. It's like a lot of people in that film can't sing, which is also detrimental to the music. Like the Jenny Any Dots number, apart from being pure like Clive Barker esque nightmare fuel. <laughs> On stage, that's a three-part melody. And then they just turn it to Rebel Wilson singing it, and she doesn't have the pipes for it. But then when they do like the other little scat bits, it's these creepy little children doing it. And they all sound terrified. Yes. So you don't even get a sense of why these songs are fun. It's like he's trying to push the music to the background so that we can focus on the cockroaches and the yeah. children mice and Ray Winston and things like that. I think what needs to happen in my personal cat's education for anyone else who is feeling compelled by this is to <laughs> dive into the the recording of the original Broadway show. Or I think I think they did one of the of the UK production and see that and see these songs produced in a different way. Uh, I know like the arrangements are a little bit different in a couple songs and the choreography in some of them as well. But yeah, I'm curious to experience a Jenny Annie Dots that is musically more sound and and yeah you're absolutely right i think the power of memory comes from its stillness and you just are there watching that but then in, in other songs what bustopher jones is doing on screen is so distracting and, and terrifying and kind of the same goes for rumple teaser and mungo jerry that the singing is less on display i mean there's some really good ballet in that number as well but yeah i guess i'm less focused on the singing which is a problem for a show that is a musical, and I think that's another <laughs> big thing that Tom Hooper seems weirdly allergic to, and I think you get that with Les Mis. People got so caught up in the gimmick of, oh my god, they're singing live, and it's like, plenty of shows have done that. The problem is it was a totally wrong choice for a show that's supposed to be that vast, and it's supposed to have these big sets, and you're really supposed to get a sense of the scale and the stakes, and I don't think you get that. When you have all of these actors who sound exhausted because <laughs> they don't have the breath to sing or they just can't sing, bless Russell Crowe. But, you know, stuff like when they sing, you know, Empty Chairs and Empty Hallways, which is supposed to be a very beautiful song. You have Eddie Redmayne, my arch nemesis, who sings like <laughs> Kermit the Frog, but then they just give no sense of space or things that have lost. You really just get the feeling that what he's interested in is almost putting on like a television play. Or things like the Fernardier's number, Master of the House, which is a riot when you see it on stage. It's great fun. And you need the lightness of that song. Like, that song is very dark in a way. It's about these two con artists who are bleeding a dying woman dry. <laughs> but there is a revelry to it. And you need that moment of just, like, respite from the rest of the show, which is so dark. And it ends dark. Like, that show ends with basically everyone being dead. And hope of, you know, a change in the future being this sort of bleak glimmer in the past. Yeah, maybe one day we'll have a revolution, but it wasn't today. <laughs> Not this one, France. Come on, let's get another one. But on this, in the movie, that song sounds so hopeless. And it's weird as well because Sasha Baron Cohen can sing. He's really good in the Swedish Hod movie. But you get that sense of like the lack of understanding of the tone in Cats as well. Like Cats is a weird tone to nail. There is no way around it. Like there is no way to make sense of that show. But it's a show that is deliberately fun and funny in places. And Hooper's way of doing funny is to let James Corden and Rebel Wilson riff. And all their riffing disturbs the music. Yeah, it gets right in the way of a song. Like maybe if you're starting to vibe with Bustopher Jones or with Rum Tum Tugger's songs, you have to jump over to Rebel Wilson saying like, well, I can dance like that. <laughs> like James Corden taking a break to like look at the camera and say, cats, when once you leave their songs or parts of the movie that they are present for, yeah, that same kind of winking is not present, so it's very clear it was improv from them, and no effort was made to make that a cohesive part of the movie. 
Yeah, and you also understand as well that they're letting these actors do this because they're on set maybe four or five days. They are not there for the entirety of it. And they should be because this is an ensemble show. Everyone's supposed to be on stage at the same time. You're supposed to get a sense of the real community of the strange, strange Jellicle cats. Whereas clearly it's like, well, Taylor Swift isn't going to be here for the whole thing because she's got a tour to do and like a respectable, critically acclaimed life to lead. <laughs> so we'll give her her big solo number We'll make it a solo because it's not in the show. That's two cats that sing the McCavity number, not one. And then we'll let her go. You know, Rebel Wilson will get her number and then we'll let her have some jokes. And then her and Ian McKellen and James Corden will be off on their own little boat for a while so they don't have to hang out with the rest of the ensemble. Yeah, we'll invent a plot. The plot is servicing not just having a story, but to squire away some of your high-profile actors who can't get for very long. And you also have to remind everyone that these people are high-profile actors, and that's probably why there's so little real modulations of their face. Because even the makeup on stage is better at disguising who these actors are than what happens in the movie. They really don't look much like cats. They do just look like people with weird cat ears and kind of a strange dusting of skin hair, face, fur, skin. Like, Idris Elba's fur in this movie is the same colour as his actual skin, and it's so uncanny, Valley. But I think that's another problem with the formula. We've got this idea, well, we have to have these big stars in them because that's why people will watch them, and it doesn't matter if they can sing or dance. It doesn't matter if they're right for the role. And it's very condescending. And you know what? Sometimes star casting can work. Like, I think one of the reasons that Chicago works as well as it does is because you have one of the biggest actresses in the world at the time, Renee Zellberger, playing this just, like, desperate gold digging fame hungry shrew and she's great in it Mm -hmm. and then you have something like moulin rouge as well i mean nicole kidman who is still coming out of the shadow of being mrs tom cruise and is being a capital m mega star in that role that film is all about her kind of stardom that works you know but with stuff like into the woods like i'm not going to diss meryl streep but it's very distracting when she's in that movie it's distracting when you have all of these stars it works with a couple of roles like chris pine is hilarious in that movie he's so well cast because it's riffing on the fact that he looks like an actual disney prince (laughs) but with all these other ones i i don't get it these adaptations of specifically theatrical productions just seem so ill-suited to being hollywoodized and cats was the totally wrong show to do it with like Cats is something that can only be done in the theatre. You only buy that if it's a theatrical production. Because nowadays we tend to tilt so much towards realism. And I think Tom Hooper is a director who's so beholden to full-on like British kitchen sink drama kind of style. We have this idea that's the only way that we can really make films anymore, partly because that's what the Academy likes. You know, They want to see the Joker told us a Scorsese movie. They want to see a massive World War One film done in one take where it's all very real and gritty and bloody. And they kind of want that with musicals too. And once again, that's really strange because the musicals that revived this for us 20 years ago are so not real. Yeah, very like, outside Like, Rouge is completely over the top and bombastic and is very thoroughly unreal in its depiction of these characters and the way that they speak and the way that they act and you know Kylie Minogue is a fairy in it and you know everyone's singing Nirvana and the camera is really frenetic of its cutting and Chicago is all a dream world which is a really smart adaptation of that story but it doesn't really work with most of these other shows I think it can work like Bob Fosse's adaptation of Cabaret fully turns that into like hardcore historical realism 
strips away all the songs in the show that aren't diegetic. All the songs take place in the club except for Tomorrow Belongs to Me. They're all sung there. It's not a spontaneous thing. But you can't do that with Catch. I think another big problem is that Lloyd Webber's 80s period is now, in hindsight, quite camp. I don't think it was intended as such, but there is definitely... It's adopted those qualities as it's as these films have aged. There is nothing camp in the slightest about the Cats movie. It's like weirdly hetero. I didn't think the Cats could ever be like super heterosexual. I want to ship uh, something between Monkus Trap and Magical Mr. Mistopheles, but uh, <laughs> it, it's it's very slight. It's very slight. Yeah, and you have like if you watch the stage show, like I know that the fandom, bless Cats fandom, I think they're adorable. I love them, but like their kind of primary ship is Rum Tom Tugger and Mistopheles, uh-huh, okay. which is played up a lot in the show because also the person who leads the song of Magical Mr. Mistopheles is Rum Tom Tugger. That's right. He's just hyping him up. And you can totally listen to that. Is like, yeah, my boyfriend's great. Shut the fuck up. He's going to get the job done <laughs> with his rainbow flag flying across the stage and his light up suit. You know, what on earth could be heterosexual about that? And then they give him like a love interest here and that's a whole subplot. The, the whole thing with like Victoria, they just sort of like occasionally like moon at each other in this weirdly like, I mean, when then you have a whole orgy scene, which... <laughs> like, I don't know if you read the interview where apparently that that scene, like the catnip idea, was t- Taylor Swift's dad's idea. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, and he then Tom Hooper doesn't and... seem to know what catnip is. <laughs> no, and, and, and to be fair to, to Tom Hooper, you know, he, maybe he doesn't know that catnip can affect cats differently. Like, sometimes they, like, go to sleep. Sometimes they get really riled up. I, yeah, I don't think he knew that. But in this case, he went with a specific interpretation that... I feel like most cats do not react that way with like they don't get sleepy and horny. They get more like <laughs> erratic and bouncing off the walls. I mean, my favorite piece in that the, the Daily Beast expose on this special uh-huh. effects film is when there's just a line where it says, as you know, cats don't dance. And, you know, the animated film of the 90s would disagree with that quality. But it's just another sign that I don't think Tom Hooper realizes that you can't do a one size fits all formula with all of these stuff. But the thing is... He's such a disastrous choice for that musical. I kind of want him to keep making musicals now. Maybe not ones that I like, but you know, like I want him to stay away from from Hair and Cabaret and you know all of my favorite shows. But like, give him Starlight Express. Let me see hardcore, hyper realistic CGI trains with Eddie <laughs> Redmayne's face. You know? Oh no! I'm just imagining him in his Jupiter ascending character, just like <laughs> I am a train. <laughs> Do you know the story behind Starlight Express? I don't know. I know that they are trains and they are on roller skates. That is it. (laughs) Yes. Andrew Lloyd Webber is a huge fan of the Thomas the Tank Engine books to the point where he named his production company after the series. Oh, The really useful company is a Thomas the Tank Engine thing. So he wanted to make a Thomas the Tank Engine movie, a musical, I mean, and couldn't get the rights and then was going to do a Cinderella musical for a while, which is actually supposed to be on West End now, but there's a plague. And then he wanted to make a show for kids and decided to do it about toy trains, but not the Thomas ones, because that's infringement. But he told his director, Trevor Nunn, who directed the original production of Cats, I want it to be high concept, I want it to be appealing to kids, and I want it to be, like, unique. So they came up with the idea of roller skates, which the audition process for was basically a nightmare, because all of these professionally trained dancers turned up with their brand new roller skates and were like, I can do this. And then we get carted off in ambulances screaming because they'd broken their ankles and stuff. Oh, wow. Like, there are stories of the of like the production of Starlight because there's a they revamped the theatre they were working in to put in a full ramp that went around the theatre. Right. So you have all these dancers on roller skates going 40 miles an hour around the stage 
And if the ramp doesn't fully line up with the stage, then those actors are going to be taken off screaming. And that happened all the time. So I was like, imagine the show you die on is cast. It's not worth it. Someone tell him it's not worth it. No, exactly. And that's the thing is it didn't even run all that long. I think it did okay here. It didn't work in America because they didn't do the stage thing. But Jane um, Krakowski from Fairy Rock was in it for a while. The show has run continuously in Germany since about 1986. Where they have the specialized stage. Oh yeah, they have a whole ass theater built just for Starlight Express. You can go look <laughs> it up. It is like, bless Germany for this, but they keep rewriting the show to add new elements. There's a train in the new production called Brexit. What? Yeah. They're they're incorporating contemporary references? Oh yeah! Is, is he doing the writing changes or is that sort of, has, has he given it over to other people? Oh, Lloyd Webber is notoriously very controlling of his work. This is all him. He seems a little bit like, I don't know, kind of reminds me of George Lucas in that way, with with wanting to take <laughs> ownership of his show again with Phantom and, and write the canon sequel that no one wanted. Oh, I have such a fascinating soft spot for Love Never Dies. Someone, as, as someone who has a literal shelf in her house <laughs> of Phantom of the Opera stuff, like, I collect books that are retellings of Phantom of the Opera. I have a whole shelf of them. But Love Never Dies is basically every bad fan fiction you've ever read. But it's also the show that only a man with that amount of money and no one telling him what to do could make. Yes, also very similar to George Lucas. It undoes all the stuff that's really good about Phantom. Like, Phantom is a really cohesive, complete emotional arc. And then mm-hmm. he's just like, fuck it. I've never gotten over Sarah Brightman and neither shall you. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I wanted to ask. In terms of Tom Hooper's career, I was curious if you think that this came more from Tom Hooper, whether this was something that he was hired for, because like it seems like it was a melding of trying to be something popular, at least from the studio point of view, but him also trying to make another Oscar movie. It, he's a really fascinating director when you think of the contrast of him. I mean, he is essentially the perfect middle brow, middle, you know, middle of the road kind of Mm-hmm. mainstream accepted prestige director but he also approaches films in a way that makes it seem like he's more edgy and experimental than he actually is because i think all of these ideas that he has could apply well to certain things like i think it works in the damn united i think it mostly works in the king's speech i think the real strength of the king's speech is the actors yeah but he does it with everything regardless of what it fits with i mean danish girl is really weird in that aspect too and that's also just a really nasty pig-headed movie that should not have been made by these people that story should never have been told by cisgender heterosexual people it's so offensive eddie redmayne's performance in that movie is just embarrassing like that's a whole mm-hmm. other conversation but i don't like eddie redmayne is our nemesis on pajiba.com yeah <laughs> like we're so scared of him we, we don't trust him uh but with stuff like you know, lame is, I understand like on the abstract sense why he would be considered good for that because in terms of like the socially conscious, gritty musical, I guess for lack of a better term, and I kind of like don't like applying grit to musicals. The great fun of musicals is that they aren't gritty. But if you're going to make that style work with any musical, it's probably going to work best with the epic adaptation of an 1100 page book about poverty and revolution in France. Like there's logic there. There's grit in the themes, at least, and then that maybe that could bring something in the style. But I think that what works so well about that show on stage is that it is surprisingly minimalist. Like, you think that there's hundreds of sets on that thing. You're so deceived in it thinking there's a whole world, and really it's one turntable and in a barricade that kind of folds in from the side of the stage. It's really clever. New productions have gotten rid of the turntable, and I know a lot of fans are disappointed about that. But with Lee Miz as well, he's trying to make the style work, but also he's oddly lacking in scope. Like, that barricade, when they build it, it looks like a set. 
they are clearly shooting that thing on a studio and you can tell. Like, there's no real sense of the vast world that they are part of. And partly because he's shooting everyone in close-up. Makes the world feel smaller. It makes it feel smaller and it means that all of these relationships between these people... You know, when Empty Chairs and Empty Hallways is sung, you're supposed to feel like this man has lost everything. And it's kind of like, where are we again? Where are these people? Oh, I guess they died. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but that movie, I think, was... I mean, first of all, I think that Tom Hooper's bag of tricks hadn't been shown to be empty yet. I think people were giving him enough credit. The acting is primarily pretty good in Lamez, but also I think critics were very sympathetic towards the fact that these actors were working under dire circumstances. They have to sing live. They had to do this all in set. They have to do a lot of it in one take. Yeah, they're approaching it from like, oh, the technical difficulty of it is so impressive. Yes. You know, they're giving them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and so much of the conversation about that movie, especially during awards season, was how they'd made it so much more hard for themselves. I mean, the fact that they had to invent an entirely new way of like recording audio to make this work was like a big selling point. And that was amazing rather than being like, why the hell did you do that? That's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when it works, it really works. But I think it's almost in spite of Hooper. Like, Anne Hathaway sells I Dreamed a Dream despite the fact that you know she's not able to breathe properly with that song. And that song works as a close-up. But when it comes to like, you know, 24601 and it's just full-on close-ups of yeah. Hugh Jackman's like quivering, sweat, grime-covered face... You don't get a sense of scale, or when he's battling Jean Valjean, which is supposed to feel so like War of the Worlds. This is epic. This represents so much. This is all about the intersections of poverty and justice and the oppressed. And it's really just like two guys kind of scowling at each other and then tapping swords. And the tap of the sword is so like over amplified much more than the singing. It's like little moments like that that just are so strange. Uh, the fact that Russell Crowe's performance is like a lot of jaw acting, like there's a lot of gurning as well because I don't think he's being directed very well and I think that's another thing is I don't know how good a director Tom Hooper is with actors he gets them nominated or wins them a lot of Oscars but I right. don't know how much of that is driven by him like he famously beat David Fincher to the Oscar when he won for the King's Speech over the social network a win that has aged terribly I would have given it to Toy Story 3 but <laughs> The thing is, I like the King's speech, but I think a lot of it is almost that, you know, it is in spite of it. But, you know, you really can't go wrong with Jeffrey Rush and Colin Firth and Helda Bonham Carter making the kind of film that they've made before. You know, with The Damned United, you can make Michael Sheen play anybody. And you have all these great, like, sturdy British character actors in this. Something like Les Mis, you have all these actors working in spite of these problems and they are giving it all. And I think if you look at kind of the acting years at the Oscars, Best Actor was quite sparse so Hugh Jackman getting in is you know he's never been nominated before there's a lot of goodwill for him he's hosted the show he's a famed musical actor anyway he goes on and does The Greatest Showman which I hate Ugh. yeah I was just thinking about that with that one Tom Hooper's style does a disservice to his performers like you're identifying in Les Mis and in Cats the way he's shot and, and the constraints they have to work under and so I was happy that Hugh Jackman got to like fully use his full voice. But yeah, I have, I have a lot of problems with that movie. But it, but it was good to see him able to use like the full range of his tools of dancing and like fully singing, not like breathily talk singing. I mean, that's the thing is musical theater is a really specific talent that very few film actors actually have. 
you know, some of them can translate over, but not a lot of people do both. Hugh Jackman is a rarity because he started out doing stage work and kind of evolved into the fucking Wolverine. You know, it's kind <laughs> of astounding when you think about that man's career. So it makes sense that the way he flourishes on film and musical is through a pet project he designed for himself. It's baffling that it's a piece of propaganda about P.T. Barnum. Oh, yeah. Fully glosses over. What a nice over. guy. What, he even, in the, even in the movie, he treats the, free, the so-called freaks so badly and never apologizes. Oh. But he's really a champion of the underdog, isn't he? Like, uh, I'm really sad that they didn't cover the period in Barnum's life where he became a congressman and outlawed contraception in Connecticut. Like, I wanted a musical number about that. <laughs> and it's weird because there is a P.T. Barnum musical called Barnum, which is really good. And it has a number in it called There's a Sucker Born Every Minute, which is like one of the great leading men musical numbers. And I bet he'd be great at that. I don't understand why he had to make this whole new musical. And I don't like Pasek and Paul, who did the music, and they did La La Land and Dear Evan Hansen don't like their work. I mean, they do some good earworms, but... They do. I, I like a lot of the songs from The Greatest Showman, but I despise the plot. Like, it'd be great if P.T. Barnum was actually singing about how a sucker is born every day and not, like, a world of dreams I'm going to give you, my wife, when we're older. You know, it got Michelle Williams paid. At least it had one good quality going for it. You know, that and Venom, she's got to pay for her family somehow. Yeah, it's good to see Rebecca Ferguson in movies. I like that. <laughs> I do wonder if... The Greatest Showman was an influence on Cats. I get the feeling that Universal saw how much money that movie made. I think it made close to half a billion dollars. And it did all these big sing-along screenings and it got an Oscar nomination. And it's now, you know, that, that soundtrack was on the Billboard chart for, I think, a year and a half. It was on the British charts for about a similar period of time. So I wonder if they kind of wanted a similar phenomenon with that. And it made sense to do it with Cats because most people know at least two or three songs from that show. Like, Everyone and their mother knows memory. Your mother definitely knows memory. <laughs> um, I can see a situation where if that movie had worked, people would pay to go see it, unironically, to sing along. Because, you know, I've been to screening, like, they, they started doing screenings of Rocket Man here, where you can sing along with them. They did it with Bohemian Rhapsody, which, oh God, that upsets yeah. me so much. Um, they, they do it for shows like Mamma Mia gets this all the time now, you know? So I understand a lot of the business decisions behind it. Like, that's the thing is, like, on paper, I understand the business side of it more than i understand the creative side yeah this should work this should be popular and that's weird it's like it works on the stage and then they kind of try to translate what works on the stage into a cinematic format not realizing those things are totally incompatible so what you end up with is this complete curiosity that was always going to fail i mean to do this movie in the style that they were committed to Cannot have been cheap. I know they say the official budget for this thing was 95 million. I don't believe that for a second. If this thing costs less than 150 million, I will be stunned. There's no way they think this thing that comparatively cheap. Do you think that's from mostly the the rushed or, or sort of the visual effects that had to be? From the reports we've heard that visual effects were never final, but also had to be completely scrapped like months before the release date. Where do you imagine the money was going to i think initially a lot of the money went to the stars like i don't think taylor swift is working for scale um <laughs> yeah. but also vfx departments are notoriously overworked and underpaid it is a crime that we treat them the way that they do and it was it made me so mad when we got to the oscars and then rebel wilson and james Corden did that skit where they're like yeah. let's remove responsibility from us while we're handing an award to the people who've probably not got a job anymore for doing all of this stuff but you see a lot of the logic applied to the crushing, you know, video game culture that you ended up seeing with cats, like the concept of crunch, which is basically where you work round the clock at the last minute to get something out on time. 
And, you know, you had Tom Pepper bragging he was working on the effects of this film leading up to the premiere. And it's like, that's not a good thing because the people who are actually doing the work on that are probably not being paid very well. They're probably being treated like crap. Allegedly, they were if we go by the Daily Beast piece. Mm-hmm. And they're being directed by a guy who doesn't seem to know how effects work. Like, there's a quote in the Daily Beast piece where it says something to the effect of Cooper didn't know what rendering was. Like, he didn't understand what a basic model was. Yeah, he wanted to see the the finished effects. And, like, that's... That, that would take a lot of money and a lot of time, and, and you need to be able to imagine it yourself. Which is another fundamental like problem of the director. So I am curious as well if this will impact his career. Like, Is he going to really go to director drill? Because he's a straight white guy. They don't send him to director drill very often. They, they send them away when they go there. Yeah, but he's such a public joke, and the failure of the film is so heavily pinned on him in a way that a lot of these films aren't. Like A lot of stuff like this, the actor gets the blame. Or it's a studio failing. Or, you know, something was going on behind the scenes. There was a disaster. We ran out of time to, you know, like what happened with the snowman? You know, they didn't even finish filming the script. <laughs> so no one blames Thomas Alfredson for that, which bless him, they shouldn't. But with Cats, the, the failure is tied entirely to Tom Hooper. Even more so than Andrew Lloyd Webber. Because like I said, everyone knew that it was a weird idea to make the show into a movie. So I wonder, is he just going to go back to doing TV? Because he did a couple episodes of his Dark Materials. Yeah, start to build up the credit again, showing that like he's still a capable director doing things that are not cats. Yeah, I feel like what he ends up doing is he'll go back to TV and then a few years down the line, he'll end up doing like a really respectable mid-budget British period drama about another king or royal or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. and then we'll get the full variety cover piece on how Tom Hooper got out of director jail and then he'll beat David Fincher to another Oscar. Um <laughs> Like, ultimately, I think he's going to be fine because I don't think he needs to learn any lessons from it because he'll, like, once again, like, directors like him will typically be okay. There will always be roots back. There's part of me that kind of wants him to double down on it. Like, seriously, go make Starlight Express, you know? Yeah, he wouldn't get the same budget, but, like, if you're passionate about this, if he if you really believe that you were saying something about the perils of tribalism, oh. as he said... <laughs> I forgot about that. I'm just going to read this comic, because I don't think I've read it on the podcast yet, because the full thing is, is pretty great. It, it seemed like he genuinely believed in this, and I love that. He said, I think the film, at a thematic level, is perhaps suggesting that we as a community are stronger, when rather than dividing, we reintegrate into our community the fallen, the forgotten, the disgraced... So central to the movie is a message about the importance of forgiveness. And then he also likened it to like, it's very relevant to, to the UK and the US and <laughs> today's cultural discourse oh, and, and how politics is making it harder for acts of kindness to come across the divide. Once again, if he wants to do a show, a musical about tribalism and Brexit, Starlight Express, baby, there's a train called Brexit. Bless, it is the show for you, my friend. He could really be saying something uh, speaking to today's political <laughs> landscape more directly. This thing is like all the musicals I'd love to see get their moment to shine in this current political moment, I think are so ill-suited to doing them as movies. Like Assassins, which is Sondheim's musical, which is like a weird circus-style review involving all of these people who either successfully or unsuccessfully managed to assassinate a president. Is is that his cats? Because how would you make a plot of that? I mean, you have to do that once again. I think you'd have to make that fully Brechtian or just lean in hard and go like full Ari Aster. Like, you could not make that thing a normal movie. Or even something like... I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen more 1776 stuff because that is a full-on musical about Founding Fathers. Um, I wonder if this has scared a lot of people out of doing musicals because there was a lot of talk that 
they were going to adapt another Lloyd Webber musical, which was his take on Sunset Boulevard, and it was going to be the big Oscar vehicle for Glenn Close. We've heard nothing on that since December 2019. So I'm wondering if that's been killed. Yeah, yeah. We were sort of on this trajectory with La La Land, especially, and Greatest Showman, where they, these were popular. And I'm wondering what could it be that could get us back into that mode? If Oh, I, I, I've like forgotten everything that was like pushed out of this year. But whenever we get to see it, I really would love to see In the Heights. I'm very excited for In the Heights because that feels like a good fit for film. But I think one of the things we might end up seeing more of is just producers deciding, let's just film the stage show and put it on a streaming service. Because Hamilton, you will never get a Hamilton movie and probably that's for the best because what we have is this Disney Plus version is so effective. It completely conveys what makes that show work. So I think your options are do that for the big stuff. And then if you have these smaller, more niche musicals, frankly, they make more sense to be adapted. Like um, Fox Searchlight has Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which is a huge hit in the UK, but I don't believe it's ever been released in America. And it's a show based on this true story of this, this English high school kid who wants to be a drag queen. And it's a really sweet, very fun musical. And it's huge here. Oh, yeah. I just saw the trailer for that. Yeah. Richard E. Grant is like the head drag queen, which once again, that's all we need. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that makes sense to me as like a smaller show that you could kind of that makes sense as a thing that could find its audience. But if I was, you know, if I was Andrew Lloyd Webber and people were asking me, when are we just going to see this show or this show, I would just put the live recording up. And he did that. Over the summer, during lockdown, there were certain weekends where you could watch some of his shows. Like, you could watch the recorded version of Catch. You could watch the anniversary version of Phantom. You could watch Love Never Dies, which was a great night. I had a ball with that. I drank a whole bottle of Prosecco on my own. It was beautiful. <laughs> oh, speaking of bottles, uh, I, <laughs> yes. I know that you recently purchased a Cats-themed, what is it, bottle of wine, bottle of champagne? It was a full-on bottle of champagne <laughs> with Cats branding all over it. I was a little disappointed that the bottle itself wasn't branded. It was the box it came in. Uh. I think that they were hoping it would be like, you know, buy your fancy champagne and have a night at the theater by watching cats in cinemas because when i saw it I, I saw it with one of my friends and we bought a bottle of prosecco to drink in the fear 30 bloody quid it was actually about the same price as the champagne i bought and it wasn't enough we should have bought more <laughs> but i think it, they were trying to create that sense of occasion with it but i do plan to keep the box i haven't decided what i'm going to do with it yet but it will i'm going to pride a place somewhere and put something in it nice you know Maybe I can get a cuddly cat to put on it or something. Yeah. I, I, actually, this this feels very reminiscent, actually, of Greatest Showman. I worked for 20th Century Fox at the time that was getting released. I remember seeing around the office, like, many boxes, but also the bottles were Greatest Showman branded champagne. Ooh. <laughs> I'm actually surprised I didn't see a little more, like, merch and marketing tying into Cats the movie. Because, obviously, the history of the musical basically inventing musical theater marketing but also andrew lloyd webber knows how to make money even with like the crap stuff like he's a man who's really effective at profit so i'm kind of surprised we didn't see more of that i wonder if he's salty that he didn't get the opportunity to do that because oh yeah what do you think he in september he in the way that cast members already have was trying to distance himself from the movie saying like the whole thing was ridiculous tom hooper should have involved more people involved in the original i'm just like but you you were involved in this. You're from the original. It's your show. I mean, that's the thing is he's famously very controlling over his material. So he must have been involved in this movie somehow. I wonder if, like Hooper, he didn't really have an awareness of what this thing was going to look like once the effects were put in. Because if you're watching that on a set and all you see are these actors and their leotards 
doing ballet and dance and it probably looks better when there's not shaky cam like you actually have a view of what's happening right you're just seeing it on the set and it looks great yeah and you see judy dench lying around you don't see her scissoring in the air yet because they had that <laughs> right. in cgi like maybe it did look great on that front wait you don't think that she actually raised her leg you think that was just a cgi leg fully <laughs> I think that was Maggie Smith's leg, actually, that they just added in. <laughs> you know, I, I wonder if he has a good awareness of his own material mm. in terms of a movie, because he was reportedly very involved in the making of the Phantom movie with Joel Schumacher, and that film is near identical in structure to the musical to its detriment. There's a lot of stuff that just doesn't work in the movie that does work on stage. You don't get a sense of scale either. That thing is also very clearly shot on a set, and they have no sense of epic. And also Gerard Butler is in it, you know. <laughs> But even something like Evita, Evita the movie, which Alan Parker, the late great Alan Parker shot, is full on like gritty political realism in a way that's not great for the musical itself. Like I think that's a musical that works best when it's jammed full of artifice. And the original stage production directed by Hal Prince played that up. It was a piece of political theatre in the literal and figurative sense. But um, when you make a movie, you've got Madonna and you have to have a crowd of people yelling for Madonna. So maybe it doesn't work on that front. I'm surprised that we haven't had more Lloyd Webber movies, actually, because he is such a huge cultural force. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I don't think this is going to generate more. Yeah. At least not for now. I mean, where would you even start? Like, if they do Sunset Boulevard, I'm curious what that will look like, because I don't like that musical. But it's also because Sunset Boulevard is one of my favorite movies and I don't think it works as a musical. There's an apocryphal story. I don't know if it's true or not. I want it to be true. But allegedly, after that musical premiere, Billy Wilder walked out of a screening of it and someone asked him, how was the musical, Mr. Wilder? And he says, the story is great. They should make a movie out of it. <laughs> I would be curious if they actually decide to do that because it would also be kind of like Hollywood sacrilege to make that show. But, you know, they're never going to make a movie out of, like, his version of Whistle Down the Wind with lyrics by Jim Steinem from uh, Meatloaf songs. They're oh. probably never going to make a movie about his musical about the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Maybe they'll make a School of Rock musical movie, but I think that the original is so perfect they don't need to. I think maybe they've kind of tapped the well dry because so many of Lloyd Webber's post-Phantom shows were huge flops. I mean, it got to the point where Lloyd Webber was better known in Britain for a while for being the judge on like the reality TV <laughs> show castings for musical revivals of things like The Sound of Music and Oliver and Joseph, which were amazing. I think they're on YouTube if you're ever bored one day. They are the closest we've ever come to the Hunger Games in real life. Oh no. They basically, every time they introduce Lloyd Webber, he's sitting on a throne of gold, flames shoot out from behind him, and then the overture from Phantom Place. Oh no. But he's sitting there. They did one called Over the Rainbow which is one of my favourite things that's ever happened to pop culture, because they did a stage version of The Wizard of Oz, which included extra songs by Lloyd Webber. So they cast both Dorothy and Toto through this show, and every week someone would get voted off. They'd have to take their sparkly shoes off, hand them to Andrew Lloyd Webber, who would then hang them on like one of those mug trees that you keep in your kitchen. Dorothy would then get strapped onto an actual moon, singing over the rainbow, and they'd fly her across the audience while all of her other contestants waved at her. Oh, that's so much better than what they do on Survivor when they vote them out. I would love to see <laughs> Jeff Probst taking some ruby slippers. Sadly, they also did a version for Jesus Christ Superstar, but they didn't string up Jesus on a cross after every time they eliminated him, which I felt was a missed opportunity. <laughs> you know, I want full crucifixion when you eliminate these people. Spare no mercy. Actually, I'm surprised we haven't seen another movie of Jesus, because there is one that was made by Norman Jewison in the 70s, but 
We did get the Jesus Christ Superstar uh, live production. And, and maybe I wonder if, if we ever get back to a production situation where we see more of those produced for like network TV, whether, I don't know, maybe Cats could work in that scenario where it is obviously a staged version, but filmed with TV stars. So you tune in. I would be fascinated by that. Actually, um, one of the things I'm desperate to happen is, so when they did, um, I think it was when they did Jesus Superstar, Ryan Johnson, director of The Last Jedi, said dibs on Phantom, and it's all I want. <laughs> That'd be so great. Because right, if you don't, if you follow Ryan Johnson on Twitter, he's like a not so secret Andrew Lloyd Webber fanboy mm-hmm. who loves who loves Phantom of the Opera and Aspects of Love, and kind of likes Cats. But um, every now and then we'll just talk about how much he loves Phantom, and is like, I want you to make the Phantom movie because Kylo Ren and Rey is basically Phantom and Christine just like put on a chandelier and let's just make this happen oh yeah he could handle that really well in a way that I don't trust a lot of I'm assuming it's bad in the movie but uh yeah that's that's, that's a delicate thing to do and I bet he could do it yeah Joel Schumacher was not the right man to make that movie I don't know why he did I, I feel like he just was friends with Lloyd Webber or something because you'd think that he would have the right kind of camp range to make that you know but doesn't work at all. I mean, once again, Gerard Butler is playing the Phantom guys. It is weird. It's very strange. Um, is there anything about Cats? I know we've talked a while, but uh, do you have any other burning thoughts that we haven't talked about? I, I, I'm just fascinated by the legacy it's going to leave because I feel like it has been so thoroughly embraced by the masses in a way that it was never intended to be, but at least its legacy is secure. Like, I think now people are kind of fond of it. It's horrific, and a lot of people regret having seen it, but like I said, we don't make these kind of disasters anymore. Like, the really big flops that we now get, like the major multi-million dollar mega flops, tend to be mostly pretty boring. You know, like, Mortal Engines, it's fine, but like when you think of it as the biggest flop in like commercial history at Hollywood, you're kind of disappointed it's not weirder, you know? Right. I, I have a soft spot for like directors who have no business making musicals, making weird musicals. So like Scorsese does New York, New York, Coppola does The Cotton Club and One from the Heart, Bogdanovich does At Long Last Love, you know, stuff like that. I'm really interested in, I want to see more. Brian De Palma does Phantom of the Paradise, which is one of my all-time favourite movies, you know, stuff like that. And Hooper is nowhere near on those level. I, I would never deign to compare him to Marty and company. But that just that sense that, you know, the real skill it takes to direct a musical and how often it's downplayed and how often, you know, you can't just throw your bag of tricks at the wall to see what sticks. So what we're left with is a rare moment in Hollywood where every bad decision was made. Because the intentions are clear. It's not as earnest as the stage show is. I think that's the problem with all the riffing. At least the stage show like believes in itself, whereas this one, they have to keep making jokes about it, which is almost more insulting. Mm-hmm. But what you have is a product that so many people clearly believed in at some point or another, because it wouldn't have gotten as far as it did. They would not have marketed the hell out of this thing if they hadn't. And also due to coronavirus, all of the buses in Dundee where I live still have the posters of cats on the side of them. Oh, and they're amazing. fading like more and more as months go by. And it's like, can we just keep them forever? I want this monument to cats forever in my city. Oh, that's so good. We I wonder if oh, I wonder if the pandemic has helped cats in any way because it's attained some of this status with some people I know where it was the last movie they saw in theaters or if people are looking for to be connected to a sense of madness that maybe it feels a little bit different than the madness of like everyday life now. 
I mean, I think it does appeal to our like really fatalistic tendencies in that way, but it's still <laughs> just escapist enough. Like a few months before lockdown, I rewatched Cabaret, and Cabaret is one of my favorite musicals. But you know what doesn't really put you in a peppy mood is a show about the rise of <laughs> Nazism right now. Funnily enough, doesn't exactly play in a peppy manner, whereas Cats is famously like devoid of substance of politics. Like I know that there are people who can make comparisons between the show. And T.S. Eliot's real-life full-on fascism. Maggie Mayfish did a full-on video on that on YouTube, which is really good. But you have to dig deep for that stuff and you have to know the work of Eliot, you know. But as someone who was aware of T.S. Eliot's work, I kind of love Cats just in the sense that, like, he would have hated it. (laughs) Because he was notoriously terrified of sex and women and like there is nothing more to oh then this movie yeah, this movie is so horny and so is musical <laughs> this movie this show yeah that's amazing so it, it is an oddly serendipitous experience in that aspect but also we're never going to see another thing like this again at least not for another decade or so you know hollywood is running out of money it's in a terrible state even before the pandemic hit risks like this don't happen even scorsese can't get all the money he needs to make his big movies and his movies are good yeah so now and then we will get these kind of glimmers, but I think that we just sort of now are left with this almost like a end of a chapter, I feel like Cats kind of signifies. Because like I said, most of our big disasters, they're Marvel knockoffs that cost $300 million and no one cares about. Like, who gives a shit about Tom Cruise's The Mummy? Yeah, it's the same case where it, it fails massively, but it's bland. It's trying to appeal to something that's not like a specific vision. And if anything, Cats gave us a specific vision. I mean, that's the thing is like, it is so hyper specific. And actually, I think the show is very boring in many ways, but I think the stage show is quite boring as well. Because it's, once again, this is the thing of trying to sustain it with a plot. Eventually, you will kind of give up. But there are, there's always something weird to look at. Like, you will always be mesmerized by something on screen, whether it's just a strange editing decision or a moment where the CGI wasn't finished yes. <laughs> or a moment where you get caught up in a song like Skimbleshanks yeah. is actually a moment in the musical where it works. It'll get to you, surprisingly. It's like, oh, this is really working. But then they bring on those creepy little mouse children again and it totally punctures the mood. And it's like, there's another moment I have to think about. Like, I understand every bad decision made in the Tom Cruise mummy. I understand all of these big Hollywood blockbuster flops that lost more money than Cats did, had more riding on them. But they played it so much safer. And the thing is, I think Cats is playing it safe. Like, all the decisions made, let's cast big stars, let's adapt a major musical, let's stick to a a visual style that's reminiscent of everything else in this film. But it's executed in such a strange and inexplicable manner that it ends up feeling almost, like, refreshing in the same way that, like, getting punched in the face is refreshing. (laughs) Yeah, but it, like, engages you. It's a different kind of engagement and choice after choice just presents itself where you have to jump out and think well wait it just kind of overwhelms you enough with that that you are hopefully having a good time or just sitting there perplexed which can be its own interesting kind of experience and it's a fun thing to introduce to people as well like a friend of mine cleolinda jones who was a blogger and a live journal writer and things she used to have a game called horrify the twilight noob (laughs) where she would just explain the plot of breaking dawn to people who have never read or seen Breaking Dawn. So once you get to the, you know, chewing open a woman's uterus with your teeth to give birth to your demon baby, and you just explain that to people, like, that's half the fun. Yeah. Like, to watch that film and just kind of, like, glance over at people when James Corden turns up or when Judy Dench starts scissoring the air. <laughs> it is such a fascinating thing to pass on. And like I said, we don't get many of those kind of movies. Every now and then it comes along, not on this scale. And in an industry that's now gotten so increasingly safe, but also too big to fail, 
because all of these blockbusters cost $300 million for something like Cats to happen. You're kind of thankful for it because it does remind you that there are still people making ridiculous decisions and sometimes it's for the best. Because I'll take this kind of ridiculous decision over, you know, hey, let's make a Furby movie or a, <laughs> you know, Hot Wheels movie or whatever the hell it is that the Mattel are now doing. I don't know? know, though. If a Furby movie was made, I could see it being interesting. What if they took the cat's approach? What if it's like a bunch of Furbies? <laughs> I mean, are we are we getting a Barbie movie written by Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig? Are we? Like, oh, my God. That's... Yeah, they're writing that movie now. Like, they've got a kid now. They've got to pay bills, you know. That could be special. That could be <laughs> weird. You know what? Noah Baumbach paid for his divorce by writing Madagascar Free. So we know he's not the lead <laughs> for this stuff. But, like, oh if we end up getting a Barbie movie that's basically Francis Ha... That would be really cool. Yeah, give me some blending of weird sensibilities that don't belong together. Yeah, let's see more of that. Like, there must be some crazed billionaire who's bored of running his own private island and buying football teams who must want to do this kind of thing. Let's get more of those. Let's get weird, you know? Yeah. Let's just go big or go home. <laughs> it's a good note to end on, because honestly, if you're going to put out these movies that cost a lot, don't be bland, don't be boring. Don't try and play it safe. Like, take a big risk and maybe you'll have a financial failure like cats, but maybe you'll also have an artistic <laughs> triumph like cats. <laughs> I mean, whoever loses, we win. Yeah, that's the opposite of the Godzilla slogan. <laughs> um, where would you like people to find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kayleigh You can find my work on pajiba.com, on what to watch, and sci-fi fangirls. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you for having me. This was such a beautiful moment to get off my chest. Okay. <laughs> it was great to talk with Kaylee, and if you want more of her funny and thoroughly informed takes on pop culture, please read her writing and follow her on Twitter. The link is in the show notes. Now, this would usually be the part of the show when I would make the Jolical choice, but this episode is long enough, so I choose not to choose. And besides, this episode already has two cats, thanks to Basil's cameo. However, if you would like to chat with me about your cat on the show, and if you liked what you heard today, please tweet about the show, tag us, and include a picture of your cat. Also, if you like the show, please subscribe. And leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, where Toast would like to know what's something you're excited about doing once you're fully vaccinated. <coughs> Toast says our original music is by Jeremy Nasato, and our show art is by Tyler Donnelly. <coughs> now, Basil, this is usually Toast's segment, where we do kind of a lighthearted wrap-up. Unless... Toast? Do you, do you want to share it with Basil? <coughs> Ooh, Basil, he said to go fuck yourself. No, okay, he didn't. I made that up. Uh, he just said he's younger than you, so he's going to outlive you. Okay, are you boys friends now? Glad to hear it. See you next time.